You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Is making the sign of the cross an ancient practice, by the way? Is it a Catholic practice? And if so, why does the 16th century reformer Martin Luther recommend that we do it every day, morning and evening? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's time for part nine of our series, Kids Have Questions. Today, Life in the Church and Practicing the Faith. Pastor Jonathan Connor joins us. He's pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Todd. I'm glad to be here. My mom said that making the sign of the cross, the Trinitarian invocation, is just a Catholic thing. Now we do it. Why is that, since that is not tradition? Yeah, so uh, this is a, it's actually a really thoughtful question from this child. I mean, they're observing, and we have several members who have come into the Lutheran confession from the Roman Catholic confession, and I'll have an opportunity to comment on that in just a minute, but that lived experience is going to color the way they see certain things. So it's important to be sensitive to that. But let me answer the child's question, then I'll expand upon it just for a minute. So I say, great question. It is true that Roman Catholics make the sign of the cross, but it is not true that this is something that is explicitly Roman Catholic. So there are some things that Roman Catholics do, like saying the rosary, for instance, that we do not do because it explicitly obscures Jesus and his work for us. But there are other things that we can share with them. So making the sign of the cross is a way for us to remember our baptisms and what Jesus has done for us. So as long as something doesn't obscure Jesus or teach or symbolize something contrary to Scripture, but instead points us to Jesus and his work for us, then we welcome it. But like I mentioned in class, making the sign of the cross is not required of anyone. People are free to do it or not. Some find it helpful, some choose not to, and that's okay. Okay, so that's where the answer ends. But I want all of us to notice here the power of association. It reminds me of Paul's words, right, in Romans 14, right? One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So I get that. Some will have different associations, especially if they've come out of Roman Catholicism and they've come out in such a way that they haven't heard the message of grace in Jesus. There is a tendency to want to leave all of that behind, anything associated with that because of living for years with uncertainty and this burden of guilt that they never felt released from. So I'm very sensitive to that. So I don't want to make a statement that says, you must make the sign of the cross, because for them it has a certain association. But let me let me make a case for why I do think there's much good for making the sign of the cross. It's because the sign of the cross involves our bodies. This is key. So it recalls, right, the baptismal liturgy, Receive the sign of the cross, both upon your forehead and upon your heart, to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. There is such value 
in involving the body in worship. And I think especially in our time when the body is largely considered irrelevant to identity, to involve the body in very meaningful and tangible ways in worship is, is critical because it, it communicates the value of that body. So we pour water on that body in baptism. We put the body and blood of Christ into that body in the Lord's Supper. We speak the word of God into the ears on our body. Christ redeems our bodies, and he's going to raise our bodies. So here's a positive case to be made for the sign of the cross. It's a way of saying this body, Jesus died for this body, this body, Jesus is going to raise this body, this body, Jesus is going to glorify this body, right? I mean, making the sign of the cross over the body testifies to the value and the worth of your body. So it's not a Roman Catholic thing. It's a Jesus died and rose for you thing. How long should a good prayer be? I love that question. What I love about it is kids are just willing to be honest with their questions. I mean, I think adults, if you're listening, surely you've had that thought before. Well, how, how long is a good prayer? I don't pray as long as pastor prays, so my prayers can't be as good. I think if you're being honest, that's nonsense. So let me answer the child's question first, and then we'll expand upon it. So I say, prayers are not measured by length. So some of the simplest yet most profound prayers of Christianity are simply, Lord, have mercy. And some prayers are quite long, so length isn't really important. Faith is. Now, let me uh, expand upon that. So we've talked about this before, but the Bible actually has an entire prayer book in it, the Psalms. And the whole book can be used to shape and guide our prayers. And I think I may have referenced before, I, I lose track what I've said and haven't said, but Martin Luther has this wonderful little book, right? He wrote to his barber, uh, which CPH has published, which they titled, Teach Us to Pray. So where he suggests basically letting the whole Bible guide your prayer life. And he says, do it like this, right? He says, first, instruction. So you read a section of text in the Bible and you consider what it's teaching you. Like, what is it saying? And then think about what God then requires of you as a result of that text. Second, thanksgiving. So use the word to thank God for something. Third, confession of sin. What sin does the text reveal that you need to confess to God? And then fourth, Luther says, take all of that and then use that to shape your thoughts into a prayer to God. Now, here's why this is so helpful, because it moves the conversation away from the length of the prayers to the faith of the prayers. It moves us into the prayers in faith, and then that time question evaporates. And that's really what we're after here. The time question can be distracting. It can put guilt on us and burden on us and keep us from actually diving in in faith into the prayer itself. So I'll have more to say on that in a little bit because another child asked a question about prayer, but that's a good start. What will happen if I can't really find time to pray or have nothing to pray about? Yeah, okay, so another great question. And again, it's refreshing to see the honesty of children. So let me answer the question, then I'll expand upon it just for a minute. I say, great question. First, let's address time. Do you have no time before school? Do you have no time before meals? Do you have no time before bed? 
I suspect you have more time than you might realize. As to what to pray about, do you want to understand God better? Well, could you ask him to help you better understand his word? Has anyone in your family experienced difficulties? Or could you pray for Zion, your church, for God to bring people to hear the gospel and be saved? Could you pray for your teachers? Could you pray for peace in Ukraine? I suggest you take the Lord's Prayer and both pray it word for word and pray it through thought by thought, pausing to reflect on each part of the prayer. Then you can use the Psalms to do the same thing. So pick one Psalm a day or even a week and pray through it. So read a couple verses and then use the words to guide you in prayer. I think you'll find it will greatly enrich your prayer life. Okay, I'm going to expand upon that. This is actually a wonderful way to enrich your prayer life. Let God's word teach you to pray. So meditate on it in prayer, right? So in the previous answer, I mentioned with Luther, you know, his little booklet, Instruction, Thanksgiving, Confession, Prayer. That's a good model. There are other models, but that's a good one that you could use from Luther. So you could try doing something like this. This is very simple, but I think also very effective. So today is September 15th, all right? So it ends in the number five. Here's something to consider. So just take your Bible and go to the book of Psalms and pick one that ends in five. So Psalm 5, Psalm 45, Psalm 105, whatever. And then you pick one of those that ends in five, and then you're going to read a verse or two or a section, and then you're going to pause and let that psalm then guide you in prayer. So what is God teaching you? What is he telling you to give thanks for? What sin might he be exposing? What prayer then does it encourage you to bring before the Lord? But what I want you to notice is just how simple this is. And there are lots of these sort of simple practices that are super easy to implement that can make a big difference in our devotional and in our prayer life. And I actually would love to hear listeners chime in on this. I think this would be really enriching for all of us that it, it, to share, you know, what are some simple ways that you have utilized God's word to help enrich your prayer life and to guide your prayer life and to be so the thing that helps it to be expansive so that you don't feel like you're just this broken record where you just say the same thing every day, but you're actually using God's word and taking God's word to him in prayer, kind of echoing back to him what he's given to you, just like a young child does who hears a spoken word from their parents and they echo it back to them. So here you are taking the words that God has spoken to you and echoing it back to him. And I'm positive, just like a young parent with a young child loves to hear that child echo his or her words back to them, God is delighting to hear his word echoed back to him. Your link to issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part nine of our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Belated birthday greetings to the U.S. Air Force, established on September 18th in 1947. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces supports all Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod chaplains who serve on active duty in the reserves, the National Guard, Civil Air Patrol, and Coast Guard Auxiliary. Find out about their service at lcms.org slash forces lcms.org slash armed forces. When we come back, the question is, why can't girls be Lutheran pastors?
You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Does this sound like your church budget process at the end of the year? You get last year's budget and go through with a committee line by line, maybe what we should spend next year. Maybe you have a prayer. But where's the word of God in this process? When do the people hear what the small catechism says about giving and why we do it? Contact us at LCMS Stewardship so that we can help you fix this process, put the word of God first, and put your congregation on a good fitting. LCMS.org slash stewardship. Augustano Lutheran Church in Moscow, Idaho, invites you to receive the gifts of Christ with us. We preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, risen from the dead for your justification and life. Confessional, sacramental, liturgical. We're a new Missouri Synod congregation on the Palouse. We meet Sundays near the University of Idaho, 1015 West C Street. Bible study, 9 a.m., divine service at 10. Find us on Facebook or visit MoscowLutheran.org. Have you ever pondered the limits of archaeology? What can it tell us? What can't it tell us? Well, Dr. David Adams takes up this topic in the September issue of The Lutheran Witness, where he discusses the fact that archaeology ultimately doesn't prove anything. It simply gives us the facts that have to be interpreted. To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness, or the Lutheran Witness website, witness.lcms.org, to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Bethlehem Lutheran, Fairborn, Ohio. Faith Lutheran, Dunedin, Florida. Holy Cross Lutheran, Carlisle, Iowa. Emmanuel Lutheran, Pensacola, Florida. Mount Calvary Lutheran, Lidditz, Pennsylvania. Peace Lutheran, Sussex, Wisconsin. Risen Savior Lutheran, Basor, Kansas. St. John Lutheran, Waverly, Iowa. St. Peter Lutheran, Arlington, Wisconsin, and Trinity Lutheran, Weatherford, Texas. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Today we're talking about life in the church and practicing the faith. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. The next question, Pastor Connor, why can't girls be Lutheran pastors? Man, that's a great question, isn't it? Surely uh, this has been asked of parents before. I've had kids ask this question and adults ask this question many times. I think it's a good question because in so many circles, it's not even questioned anymore. It's just like, well, yeah, of course girls are pastors, right? And here you have these strange Lutherans over here saying, well, actually, uh, that hasn't been the historic practice of the church for good biblical reasons. So we are now required to give an answer to this question, which maybe 
even a few decades ago, we weren't. So uh, I think having a, a good, thoughtful answer in place is important. And maybe a simple one for kids, because you don't need to get too terribly detailed. So I'm going to offer an answer to the child and then expand upon it just a little bit. So I say, great and thoughtful question. Let's think through this. Before we answer, we need to make sure we're approaching it biblically. So we need to make sure we're not bringing American assumptions into our reading of Scripture. Our goal here is to make sure the Creator comes before the creature. What has the Creator said? Well, Paul describes the office of pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and he describes the pastor as male. Why? It has to do with imaging Jesus to the church. So over in Ephesians 5, Paul describes the relationship between husband and wife in marriage. But he says that this relationship or institution of the husband and wife marriage was given by God to image Christ's relationship to the church. So Jesus is described as the groom or head of the church, who is described as the bride slash body. What's the connection to being a pastor? The pastor stands in the stead or in the place of Jesus. The pastor images Jesus to the church. Or, to be more explicit, the pastor images Jesus, the groom slash head, to the church, the bride slash body. Putting a woman in the stead, that's in the place, of the groom slash head, Jesus, doesn't make sense. So, it's not about a woman's ability or worth. It's about imaging Jesus, the groom slash head, to the church, the bride slash body. Only a man with the specific qualifications that the Bible lays out can do this. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to say on this. And I realized in my answer, I said 2 Timothy. I should have said 1 Timothy, slip of the tongue. So you can correct that in your hearing, 1 Timothy chapter 3. But obviously, there's a lot more to say on this. But a couple things in my answer. Number one, the creator before the creature. And this is really, really important. I mean, this applies in so many issues that are dividing the church today. So we consistently see churches putting, sadly, the creature before the creator. It's a basic and it's a very repeated mistake. But what we need to do is get the creator always before the creature. So that means, this is key, we don't start with rights talk. So my right, okay, my right to do this, my right to do that. That's how American conversations start. It's how we start conversations in America. But that's not how Scripture starts. Scripture starts with the Creator. So He creates. He defines. He institutes. He ordains. I like to say He controls the verbs. So point number one, the creator before the creature. And point number two, the pastor stands in the stead of the head. So it makes no sense to put someone who is called the body in the stead of the head. And Todd, you know this, but this is why so consistently you see churches that endorse women's ordination. They also endorse same-sex unions because these things are connected. If the head and body are interchangeable in the office of the ministry, they are interchangeable in marriage. But Scripture does not speak this way. 
See, the creator has established an order, and it's our job to honor it. So the pastor stands in the stead of the head. The head is male. The one who stands in the stead of the head is male. This is not because we're anti-woman. It's because we're pro-Christ. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's part nine of our series, Kids Have Questions. On the other side, did you have to go to college to become a pastor? This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we're rolling right along in our adventures in Acts with Paul visits James, Paul arrested in the temple, Paul asks to speak, Paul's story begun, and Paul's story interrupted. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western Civilization, one student at a time. Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four, C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number four, C. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Christological. My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. Historical. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by Sacramental. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins. To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church. Visiting, visiting old time, and then a wind 
It was Good Friday, but it was not good for me. I was three months into being diagnosed with major clinical depression, and everything was a struggle. For three months, I had tried to act like a pastor, even though I was on disability. I preached, taught Bible class, and was, quote, around far more than the fog in my brain should have let me. So it is that I found myself contemplating my own death on the day of the Lord's death. Contemplating, planning, expecting to die, if not that day, then very soon. Pastor Todd Peppercorn reading from his book, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. We've produced a new audiobook of I Trust When Dark My Road. You can listen and download it for free. Just enter your email address at issuesetc.org and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. Pastor Jonathan Connors, our guest, is our series, Kids Have Questions Today. We're talking about life in the church and practicing the faith. Pastor Connor, here's another one. Did you have to go to college to be a pastor? Yeah, I just love the curiosity of kids. In their world, they have no idea how you get to be a pastor. The thought of going to a pastor college, for some of these kids, they've never heard the word seminary before, so they have no idea. So I think it's a great and curious question. It's a short answer to the kid, but I think it's a a question worth expanding upon just a little bit. So I answered, yes, I went to four years of college to get an undergraduate degree, and then I went to four years of seminary to learn how to be a pastor. Then several years ago, I got a second master's degree to help me be a better pastor. So it took eight years to become a pastor, but I went to school 10 years after high school. So that's where the answer stops, but I'm going to expand upon it. So this is an important emphasis of our church body. We firmly believe that pastors need to be trained. We take the words of Scripture seriously. So I'm going to read from two texts, and, and this is, I will read now the First Timothy text, which earlier I, I called Second Timothy, but First Timothy. And also, you have just uh, a, a brief reference then in Second Timothy, which I also want to make reference to. So I think it's important to read these for our hearers' sake, that they have these clear in their mind. So Paul writes in First Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and just hit pause there for a second. So overseer, you know, the Greek word episkopos, from which we get the word bishop or pastor, overseer, that's the word being referred to there. He desires a noble task or even a beautiful task. Paul goes on, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. And then the second text, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has not no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. All right, so to do this, a pastor needs to be trained. Now, there are some in the broader circles of Christianity who want to sort of spiritualize the office of the pastor, right? So they have a very anti-academic bent. 
Now, I need to acknowledge, and I think all of us should acknowledge, yes, academics can become an idol. I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his essay called Learning in Wartime, right? And so I remember what he wrote basically was talking about, look, if your love of knowledge becomes just your love of knowing, and basically that becomes the thing that you build your identity on is your love of knowing. Then he has this great line where he says, it's basically become an idol. And he says, the time for plucking out our right eye has arrived. He's right. If we turn academics into an idol, that's more about us than about gaining the knowledge that we can communicate to our hearers, then we have a problem. So we got to guard against that. So we don't elevate ourselves. But here's the thing. If we are to elevate ourselves, we're completely missing the point because Paul talks about this over in Romans chapter 12, where he describes, you know, the grace that God has given to us that we're supposed to be then used or is supposed to express itself in gifts toward others. So this is a misunderstanding of the office if it's just this sort of academic thing where we're just becoming really smart so we can look smart. That would be wrong. But being anti-education for pastors, I feel like that's actually a pretty anti-creational position. I think it reflects this sort of spiritualized ideal, like seminary, oh, that's earthly. The pastor needs to be heavenly-minded. But, you know, I guess you could just simply say, if you didn't even go to the text where Paul talks about it, John 1.14 ought to be enough to disabuse us of this notion, because the Word became flesh. Christian spirituality is very much a creational thing. That's central to what it means to be spiritual in Christianity. So seminary then, it's incredibly valuable. I mean, it takes the words of Scripture seriously. The pastor needs to be trained, period. It's really that simple. And the seminary, yes, there are always rooms to say we could do things better. That's not the question. There's always room for improvement. But the act of training and having a school set up specifically designated to the act of training our pastors so they can rightly handle the word of truth, in my mind, that's beyond question. Why do we fold our hands when praying? Do we have to close our eyes? I love that question. It's so automatic, you know, for at least in American Christianity, I, I don't know how prevalent it is around the world, but fold your hands, close your eyes. We say that all the time. And we never say a Bible verse after it, as it says in such and such Bible verse, fold your hands, close your eyes. So it's natural for a kid to say, well, why do we do it? So I think it's a great question. So I'm going to read the answer and then I'll just expand upon it just for a bit. So I say, great question. There is nothing in the Bible of which I'm aware that instructs us to fold our hands or close our eyes in prayer. We do it, though, to close our hands and eyes to distractions so that we can focus. So if our hands are folded, they won't mess with something and distract us. And if our eyes are closed, they won't get distracted by what's happening around us. So that's where the, the answer to the child ends. I wonder sometimes if a parent isn't the one who came up with the fold your hands and close your eyes or close your eyes and fold your hands line. Because parents, and, and Todd, I'm sure you raising kids had this experience, but parents who are raising kids or you, you've raised your kids, you know what prayer time can be like sometimes, especially if you have a large family. So we have six kids. And I can't tell you how many times during prayer I've had to open one eye and wave a finger at a kid or gently knock on a kid's noggin, like knock, knock, hello, keep your hands off your sibling, quit making faces at your sibling, or just outright stop the prayer and start over and say, look, guys, 
close your eyes, fold your hands, then you won't be distracted by what your brother or sister is doing, right? So I'm pretty sure probably a parent came up with it. And so it's not commanded in scripture, but like I mentioned in the answer to the child, what it's doing by closing our eyes and folding our hands, it's closing our eyes to distraction and closing our hands to temptation, which I think is valuable. Now, having said that, if you do read through scripture, the few times it does talk about our hands and prayer, interestingly enough, it talks about raising them up. So I think of like in Psalm 63, so I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands or over in uh, 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So sometimes we see pastors do this in worship as part of the liturgy, raising their hands. So that's very appropriate. And in some traditions, you have worshipers who raise their hands in prayer. So I think we need to understand there's no hard and fast rule on this, but I do think the question will just simply be, what practice enables all of us to pray without distraction? Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, thanks. Thanks, Todd. Next week on Issues Etc., we'll continue this series, Kids Have Questions, talking with Pastor Jonathan Connor about science and faith. Chris Rosebro returns for This Week in Pop Christianity, and we'll visit with Drs. Reed Lessing and Andrew Steinman, co-authors of our book of the month, The Messianic Message. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Join us September 29th at 7 p.m. for a hymn festival celebrating the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels at Good Shepherd Lutheran in Collinsville, Illinois. Hymn commentary will be provided by Pastor Will Whedon, host of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever podcast, along with organist Chris Lemker, orchestra and choir. For more information or to register to sing in the choir, visit our website withangelsandarchangels.org. Hi, this is Pastor Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church of Mascuda, Illinois, a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Zion is a congregation firmly grounded in God's grace given in the Word and Sacraments where we treasure the timeless beauty of the liturgy. Zion is also a vibrant, young, family-friendly congregation where you would be warmly welcomed. Zion is located at 101 South Railway Street in Mascuda, Illinois, and we would love to share God's gifts of grace with you. For more information, please visit our website at zionmascuda.com. Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's small catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. 
Order your free copy of Luther's Small Catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org. The Church's Music from the 20th Century The 17th Century The 11th Century The 8th Century The 4th Century The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.